0: You know, we do some planning when we are picking out the songs that we sing and a lot of the texts that we'll be learning from, but then some things are details that I just don't have control over, and I'm just encouraged to hear in John's prayer some of the verses that we'll look at in the end of the sermon at the beginning of. This last song to read of the love of God as defined by the Apostle John in his first letter and to see that we'll talk about that this morning as well. To consider the catechism, which we're working through sequentially, but the talk of idolatry and the fact that we're going to be dealing specifically with the idols that are worshipped in Egypt and then examine the idols that are hidden and are being produced in our own hearts. We consider all those things, and we know that God is at work to teach us through the gathering of His saints together. God is at work to teach us through His Word. We have so much to learn, but we have so much to be thankful for as we come to hear from His Word. I I pray that this message will be a blessing and a challenge to you as it has been to me, that we will all come away from it uh, strengthened challenged and encouraged so if you will i want to ask you to go ahead and stand with me we're going to read from exodus chapter 7 we're going to read verses 8 through 13 of chapter 7 let's read then the lord said to moses and aaron when pharaoh says to you prove yourselves by working a miracle then you shall say to aaron take your staff and cast it down before pharaoh that it may become a serpent So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Let's pray. Y'all can be seated. Fathers, we come before you this morning. Lord, we read this story and, Lord, it sounds so foreign from anything that we would experience, Lord, in our day and time, in the routine of our modern life. Lord, the, the supernatural sign that's put on display here, Lord, It contains a message, though, Lord, that is so important for our life, that is so important in this day and time, and Lord, I pray that we would, by your grace and the work of your Holy Spirit, begin to understand, Lord, the the false promises of this world, that we would begin to understand, Lord, the means and the extent to which we will go, Lord, to deny you, to deny your power, to deny your existence. Lord, may we be convicted Lord, of our own culpability, Lord, of our our own sins against you, Lord, may we also become distinctly aware of the false promises that are are so prevalent in our culture and our society today. Lord, may we know that you and you alone are God. You and you alone are the creator of all things. You and you alone are sovereign and in control, and Lord, through you and you alone do we have salvation. Lord, I pray that those things would be clear this morning Lord, as we look at your word Lord, may you, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit enlighten our hearts may we see the love of Christ and Lord, may we be presented Lord, as mature knowing, Lord, fully the love that you have shown us through your Son Lord, we pray all this in his name Amen So you may be Wondering, I thought we were starting the ten plagues today. Well, we are, but here's the thing. We often think about the ten plagues and we think about them starting with the bloody Nile. Well, we're going to talk about that one next week, but this week we're looking at this first sign because, in fact, depending on how you look at the text, there are eleven signs. Some would say that there are twelve If you count the Red Sea, and I think you probably should count the Red Sea, you'll see how it coincides with the text this morning, but the ten plagues as we know them, they consist of these eleven signs or events, and they're events that demonstrate the power of God over creation, over all creation. So last week we saw the promise of Pharaoh's hardened heart, we saw the fact that God was going to strengthen Pharaoh's stubborn heart so that he would not repent so that God might demonstrate His might in a way that proved completely His power above all other things. So God is going to perform these signs to prove that He is over and above any power, any leader, any king, so that Israel would have faith, and even the world would see that He alone is God. Today, we're looking at this first sign, because even though, like I said, it's not typically considered one of the ten plagues or ten signs it introduces all that God is going to do through Moses and Aaron it's kind of a it's a sneak peek it's a private literally a private demonstration before Pharaoh and his officials of what God is about to do but even as we saw at the end of the text we just read it proves evidentially to Moses and Aaron that Pharaoh really is going to remain stubborn and opposed to God even when he sees the clear power of God on display before him. But God is going to continue to use that. So I've just got a simple, it's kind of a proposition, not much, but this the overarching theme that I want us to think about today as we look at this, as we prepare to work through, walk through the plagues, is this, that God proves His power by mighty signs. So God proves His power by mighty signs. We're going to see that as we look at the text. But I want you to think about, This word, signs. We talked about it a lot in the Gospel of John. We're going to see it again as we work through Exodus. But I want us to think back. As we prepare to think about this first sign that we see before Pharaoh, I want you to remember God's words to Moses earlier in the book, in chapter 3, in Exodus 3.12. Here, as God appears to Moses, and Moses is asking for, I need some hope, like give me some purpose. How can I know this is going to be true? This is what God says to Moses. He says, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you. He says, I'm going to be with you the whole time. As Moses goes before Pharaoh, he says, this shall be the sign that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So I want to just think about this. As God promises a sign, the sign that he gives to Moses isn't some sign that's immediately present. He does give him signs that he's to perform to convince the people of Israel and Pharaoh, where I see one of those today. But he says, here's the sign for you. It's a promise that when you accomplish all that, you will be back here. And when you do, inevitably end back at this mountain, but you have the people of God with you and they worship me and you all are all worshiping me together. And he said, that's the sign that I've sent you. Now, I don't know about you, but that's, that's one ape overwhelmingly positive and empowering sign, but it's also a little intimidating, isn't it? But see, God says this, though. He says, I am with you. He says, I will be with you. So God promised this sign to Moses in the future. So what are these signs for that we're going to see in the plagues? What What do we see that these signs are for that Moses is going to perform, that he's going to Enact before Pharaoh and then before the entire nation. They, these signs, are to be signs for Egypt and Israel that God is truly the one and only God. See, they've been taught for years that either God doesn't exist or that if He does, He's just a, a patron deity that only existed in their promised land, but they're in the land of Egypt, so they're subject to the gods of Egypt. Egypt, on the other hand, says, well, we don't care. Our gods are the best gods. And uh, one of our gods is Pharaoh who reigns on the throne. So they're saying, look, we don't believe at all, but God is going to prove once and for all that there are no other gods besides him. So there are signs for Egypt and there are signs for Israel. But what happens here is there's a private sign before Pharaoh and it's a warning about what God is going to do. And the reason I say we should consider this one with the ten plagues and the Red Sea, consider what's about to happen. God's snake, as we just read in the text, will swallow up Pharaoh's snakes. So God's demonstrating his power over Pharaoh, even when they try to produce a false sign. Before But then what happens in that twelfth sign when they cross the Red Sea? God provides rescue for his people, and then God swallows up Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. And it uses the exact same language. They were swallowed by the sea, just as the snake swallowed the other snakes. Now you say, what is God trying to say there? Well, I think it's pretty clear. There is no power on heaven or earth that is greater than Him. And how much hope is that for the people of God? So let's let's look, though, at the text here today, This in chapter 7, what God is doing through Moses. We see that Moses and Aaron, God tells Pharaoh, says, when Pharaoh says to you. So, one, God already knows what Pharaoh's going to demand, doesn't he? Just think about that. God's saying, you need to be prepared to do this time because when Pharaoh, who is ultimately going to do it. God knows exactly Pharaoh's response when Moses and Aaron declare again. And they do obediently go before Pharaoh and declare, you are to let God's people go. And what does Pharaoh immediately do? Pharaoh demands, he says, prove yourselves. By working a miracle. So prove yourselves. So we see them. Aaron throws down his rod. It becomes a snake. And there's a lot of symbology with what's going on here about this snake. His rod turning into a snake. So I want to look at the symbology of the snake just for a minute. Try to get that image in our head so we can better understand it. So the symbology of the snake, the serpent. It's actually a cobra that's being described here. So... The cobra in Egypt is very important. It's a, It's got a lot of symbols behind it. You've, If you've watched any mummy movies, if you've watched anything on Egypt, you've noticed that there's snakes everywhere. Well, here's why. The cobra was a potent religious and national symbol. Several deities had snake form, including Renenutet. I cannot pronounce all these names, who was a cobra goddess who was the guardian of the pharaoh. So in Egypt... Egyptian theology. This was the goddess who guarded Pharaoh, and Ejo, a cobra goddess who was the patron deity of Lower Egypt. So this is the patron deity over Lower Egypt, which is where the Israelites were living. So Egypt is separated into Lower Egypt and Upper Egypt, and under the United Kingdom, which was the two pharaohs during this time, Pharaoh ruled over both kingdoms of Egypt. Now this was this was given a depiction. On the crown of Pharaoh. So I've got an image on here. You'll, you'll recognize it. in This next slide. This is the, one of the pharaohs. Probably the most well-known pharaoh in modern day and time. This is the sarcophagus of King Tut. Y'all have probably seen that. If you'll notice on his crown. He has a serpent and a vulture. He's got a cobra on his crown. Because it was the god of Egypt. One of the gods of Egypt. It was a symbol of the power that Egypt had. So when Aaron and Moses come and they throw the rod down before Pharaoh, they're making a declarative statement. One, it's a shepherd's rod, and Pharaoh is supposed to be a shepherd king. The ancient Near Eastern kings, they, they had rods because they are supposed to lead their people, and what he's saying is, you're not leading the people like you are to be. But then he throws down, and he throws down a rod... And what's phenomenal about this is that Pharaoh asked for a sign and Aaron throws down a rod and it becomes a cobra as soon as he throws it down. So one commentator compares this to what would this be, a national symbol being thrown onto the ground before the king. This would be like going into the Oval Office, getting a bald eagle, breaking its neck and throwing it down before the president. It's a a declaration that your power is nothing compared to the power that we have. It's a declarative statement that he's making here. But see, what happens here is that when he throws the rod down, it becomes a cobra. It's a threat to Pharaoh's... Because if you see a snake in front of you, you're probably not going to be too excited. If you see a cobra before you, you're going to be terrified. And it's something... They worshipped snakes because it was something they were terrified of, but they sought to control. But what god does here through this rod that turns into a snake is he co opts a major symbol of the power of egypt and specifically and personally pharaoh himself so he's saying you think that you have the power you are the one who controls everything well how are you going to be when you're confronted with something as deadly as a cobra but even more so the god who controls the cobra, who can turn a rod into a snake. So the spiritual guardians, so remember if the cobra is the goddess that protects Pharaoh and the, also the goddess who of lower Egypt, all of a sudden, those goddesses appear be, before Pharaoh, but they're under the direct control of Yahweh. They're being controlled by God himself. So this whole sign of snakes is a declaration. And we're really... This might sound crazy to us because we live in a modern day and time. We don't have idol worship in the form of animals. We don't believe that certain animals are gods. Yet, we read from Romans 1, as we read the definition of idolatry and what the problem of idolatry is, is that we worship creation rather than the creator. So it may not look like us worshiping snakes or worshiping these created deities, But we worship a whole lot of other things, don't we? What God is doing, though, is He's taking the most powerful images of idol worship in the the nation of Egypt, the most powerful images of idol worship that even the Israelites knew, and He's putting them under His feet. He's making a declaration that there is nothing more powerful than Him. So, we see that God had planned to use this sign from early on. If we read in Exodus 4 that God prepared this sign, gave it to Moses as a declaration. So we know that this was something that God was using, was preparing, because even as He declared that, that rod and He showed it to the Israelites, they believed, they responded positively earlier in Exodus when He did performed that same sign before them. But they did because it had a message. It had a message that the Pharaoh who you believe to be in charge, is really under the control of Yahweh. He's really under the hand of God. He cannot do anything that God does not allow. So this this plague that happens here, it's actually a a small-scale miracle, and it's to test the will of Pharaoh and to show Moses and Aaron what they're up against. That's what Douglas Stewart says. He says, look, they're trying to test God is providing a test to show Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh's position towards God, and he's going to show, look, Pharaoh's still living in rebellion. See, it's this first sign, I think it's so important for us as we interpret the rest of the plagues on Egypt. See, by this sign, a point is being made that everything that's about to transpire, everything that's going to go on, is a supernatural work of God, work of Yahweh, to demonstrate that He is King and no other. So this is a supernatural sign that God is King and no other. But here's the thing. If you read any modern commentary from the the liberal tradition, if you are watching a special on the History Channel, about the ten plagues of Egypt, what are you going to get? You're going to get some kind of explanation about how this can all be explained by natural phenomenon, natural things that happened, that, that the, the Nile was really, it just it flooded and some algae came up, that's why it turned red. That, that, that led to the frogs coming out, the, the gnats, and all these explanations to try to give a natural reason for why these plagues happened. But see, this sign makes it very clear that this is not some, some natural event, is it? A wooden rod gets turned into a snake, and even though Pharaoh's magicians, as we see, they are able to make rods, and there's a lot of explanations of what happened here, but it says by their secret arts, their, their manipulations, they're able to make snakes appear. But what happens to their snakes? They are swallowed up, devoured. Devoured it's clearly, it's made very clear that God is the one who is all-powerful and in control, and He will demonstrate this through supernatural means. So when we look at the rest of the plagues, we realize this isn't some natural event that Moses was just taking claim for. This is God's supernatural judgment against Pharaoh and against Egypt. God is demonstrating His power over the gods of Egypt, over Pharaoh, His power over creation so that he can make it clear that he and he alone is God and he will rescue his people. So when we see people trying to explain, this is what really blows my mind. When people go to something like the 10 plagues and I've seen the specials on Discovery Channel and whatnot. and They try to explain this natural phenomenon away from it. They're missing the entire point of the text. The entire point of the text is to show that this isn't something natural. That this was God's divine judgment. And it proves exactly what God has promised. It proves exactly God's point because what is Pharaoh trying to do through his magicians who then create, recreate? And we're going to see this with the Nile. We'll see this with the gnats. see it with the frogs. He tries to recreate the plagues to say, oh, I can explain how this is done. But by the end of the ten plagues, by the time it is all over, in the tenth plague, whenever Moses declares that the firstborn in all of Egypt are going to die, it is absolutely clear that it is God's supernatural power on display. Nothing in this world. See, an attempt to prove and and give a natural, uh, I'd say a naturalistic explanation of what happens here, it actually brings us to the point of understanding this is what the world tries to do. This is what we in our sinful hearts try to do. We try to deny God's existence. And this is the second point here. It's the threat of false signs and false teachers. You see, it says by their secret arts. So Pharaoh summons wise men and the sorcerers. They, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. Each man cast down his staff and they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. See, they were determined to disprove God's truth by displaying their own cleverness. And he says their secret arts. So there's a lot of explanations for what happened here. There's Actual Egyptian texts, you can read in papyrus, where they document all the different species of snakes that existed uh, then and even are, some that are still now. But they also have instructions on snake charming because there's some ways that and they can charm a snake and make it rigid to stay still. And then when they throw it down, it, it comes out of the charm. And you've seen snake charming on TV. That's a legitimate thing. So they believe that that could have been what they were doing. They were charming the snake. Using different skills, hypnosis that they were able to do, or that they were simply using substitute, just like a magician would bring out of a box, say, Oh, look, it's turned into something. But it doesn't matter how they did it, that's not the focus of the text. The focus of the text is they're doing anything that they can to deny that God is God. They're doing anything within their power to give an explanation that makes them not have to depend upon God who is the one and only God. See, they were determined to disprove God's truth by displaying their own cleverness. Now maybe all of this so far, it seemed like a powerful enough truth, but you're thinking, I don't really think this applies to me. We don't worship snake gods or live in Egypt with the pyramids, right? So I don't know if this story really applies to me. So what I want to do is I want to let a more modern commentator provide us some insight into this whole episode. That modern commentator is none other than the Apostle Paul in the New Testament in his divinely inspired letter to Timothy for this story gets brought up in the context of Paul's warning about false teachers to his protege, Timothy. So in 2 Timothy 3, 1-9, through 9, you can read on the screen. Paul says this, he says, Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be, and I've listed these out so we can see these clearly, all these different things that Paul lists out. He says, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Paul lists all these things and he says, look, this is what will come. This is what is coming. And I know as we read that list, we can think, man, that sure sounds an awful lot like us, doesn't it? That sure sounds an awful lot like the culture that we currently live in. But then Paul goes on. He says, avoid such people. He says, but for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. Just as. Wait a second. He just says two men who opposed Moses. Who are these men? Well, to understand who these men are, we know that these are the two magicians that according to Jewish tradition, and they've given them names that mean deceiver and trickster. So they've given them two names these are the two men that opposed Moses. They were promoting false teaching, doing everything they could to prove something, to deny God, to deny His truth, and to lead people astray. So Paul says, Just as Janice and Jambers opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. He says, But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all. As was that of those two men. So, wait a second. Paul brings up the, the two magicians who opposed Moses in Paul's letter to Timothy. So, how does Paul understand what's going on back there in Egypt in the midst of the story of Exodus? Paul's declaring Look, there are men, there are people in your time, your day and age, who are going to seek to deceive you in whatever means possible so that you will trust in the things of this world instead of trusting in the true God. There's going to be people who are going to seek to deceive and to make you trust in the truths of the world and the reality. They'll have signs, they'll have things to try to prove to you so that you will trust in anything other than God. So Paul warns that these false teachers are coming. He warns that there are men who are going to seek to to deceive us, but they're going to do so by making it sound like they're providing something wonderful. So we ask ourselves, well, who are these false teachers of our day? Who are the false teachers of our day? Who are the people that we should be worried about when this this cosmic battle that uh, God is going to prove that He is the one and only God? Who's, who's there that's going to try to deceive us and make us doubt God's goodness? to Make us doubt the truth that He's given to us? Well, here's, here's some basic factors that we can look at. Who are the false teachers of our day? It's going to be anyone who denies the Word of God. Anyone who denies that God's Word is His holy, inspired Word because He's made it clear that through His apostles, through His teachers, that He keeps His word, that His word is trustworthy, that it will come true. You want some evidence of that? God made a promise to Moses. We mentioned it earlier. What did Moses end up seeing? God's people at the mount that God met Moses at, Mount Sinai, worshiping Him after He rescues them. God keeps His word anyone who tells you that His Word is not trustworthy, they're seeking to deceive you. If they're trying to give you information, trying to promote truth that is contrary to Scripture, they are seeking to deceive you. Anyone who rejects the sovereignty of God, to say that God isn't the one who's in control of all things, that He cannot accomplish His will, that He's dependent upon us, if anyone claims those things and denies God's sovereignty... God, that God is the creator, the one and only, that he is in control of all things. If anyone claims that, rejects God's sovereignty, if they, if they do that, they're leading you astray. For God makes it clear what's the whole purpose of these signs. He's declaring to Israel, his people, and the people of Egypt that he is the one who is in control. Anyone who rejects the promise of salvation by God through substitutionary sacrifice, which is one of the promises of God. It goes back to the Word, but is salvation by any other than Christ's sacrifice for us. And redemption that's promised through Him. If anyone promises that there's salvation through anything other than Christ, they are deceiving you. Anyone who claims divine revelation apart from the written Word of God And this is one that's growing in its its popularity, even in so-called Christian circles, that God has revealed themselves personally to people and that here's truth. Well, you know, that's how cults like Mormonism have gotten started. That's how people are deceived by people who claim divine revelation, but God says that all of Scripture is inspired. God breathes and profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So who are the false teachers of our day? It's people who would do any of these things. But by what signs are they attempting to fool us into thinking that God is not real? So we think about the magicians, and they're attempting to prove that, well, you're just a magician yourself. That's that what they're essentially trying to say about Moses is, you're just a magician. You're able to, whatever you're able to do, we can do as well. Well, we're going to get these signs that they'll give us to attempt to fool us into thinking that God is not real. The first of these is naturalistic science to, to prove that we don't need a creator God to understand how we got here, but that it can all be explained just through naturalistic science, through evolutionary models of all things instead of looking to see well, who is the designer, the creator behind all things. There's purpose behind creation. There's there's glory for God and the purpose of man behind how God has structured our creation and how we are to live in it. We'll have false teachers who will seek to provide hope through legalism, through different different means of saying that this is some special revelation. That God, that you're supposed to do this, this, and this. If you do this, you'll be saved. we will be pseudo-gospels that seek to say that that God wants you to do this works-based religion, or that you don't have to do anything, that God just loves you as you are. There's nothing wrong with you. You're a wonderful person. Those are pseudo-gospels. I mentioned the special revelation. It's people who would claim to have revelation directly from God, but it's contrary to what He has written in His Word. we will have so many different things that the world will try to deceive us by. And it's not just these outright things. There's pseudo-gospels. There's the pseudo-gospel of materialism. That if you get enough things, you'll have a good life. That if you get enough things, then you can be generous to others. There's the pseudo-gospel of power. That if you could just be in control of everything if you can discipline yourself well enough, if you can bring other people under your realm of influence, then if you can get that, then you have made it. There's a pseudo-gospel of politics that if your political party wins and is in control, then everything's going to turn out all right, And we trust in the, the gods of our political candidates to get those things done, but they are human just like us and they're fallen, broken people just like us. So what is the truth? Who are we to believe? We're to believe God God who has revealed Himself. God who has made Himself known. God who has dwelt among us. We talked about that this morning in Sunday school as Solomon builds the temple. He's the God who comes down and whose presence is with His people. So how do we live According to it. I love Psalm 19. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'll read a few verses. Start verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Reward, life, comes from knowing the God who has made himself known. He has made himself known through his word. I've quoted it already, 2 Timothy three sixteen. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So you may be asking, man, this seems like a tangent off of this story of snakes, right? So God has Moses and Aaron throw down his rod. The magicians, they're able to, through their magic arts, through their schemes, they're able to, to create snakes out of their rods as well, or at least to make the appearance so, But then, God, His snake, devours, swallows whole the snakes and the magicians. What is being said here? And this is simple as this. God will not be defeated. God will not be defeated. God's snake swallows the two magician snakes. As Paul says in Timothy, their folly was made clear to all, was it not? See, the folly of the promises of this world have been made clear. By what sign then? So we say, well, look, Moses had this wonderful sign. He had the promise given to him. What sign? The signs were given to Pharaoh and it's it's on Pharaoh that he rejects the sign that God gives him. It's on the magicians that they reject the sign that's given them. But what sign are we given? What sign are we given to have hope? What sign are we given to believe? the sign that we are given is the cross. For through the cross, God has demonstrated His power over all things, even sin itself. God has accomplished salvation by making fools of the world. God has accomplished salvation by demonstrating His power to take on our punishment while remaining just and the justifier. We see this in two passages I want us to look at. Paul prays for the Ephesians in chapter 3 of his letter. And he prays that they would be strengthened in their faith by the power that comes from knowing Christ and his love for them. So that they would be strengthened by knowing God's love through Christ in their hearts. So I'm going to read verses 14 through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul prays that they would know the sign from God of His power and His love and His might. The the true source of strength for us is not anything within ourselves, because within ourselves we are sinful people. Within ourselves we don't have strength to overcome. But he says that he prays that they would be rooted and grounded in love. So I want us to just jump really quick to the biblical definition of love so that we understand this rightly. So in 1 John 4, 9 through 10, in these two verses, the Apostle John summarizes what the love of God is. He says, In this But that we, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Paul says, be strengthened by knowing the love of Christ. You know how we're strengthened? We're strengthened when we realize that we were just like the magicians. We were just like Pharaoh. We were seeking to find any justification in our hearts to be our own gods, to discount the power, the sovereignty, the love, the truth of God who is Creator, who is the one and only Savior. We were finding, seeking out ways to justify our sin. And in doing so, we rebelled against a holy God. And Paul says, look, in the midst of your rebellion, God still loved you. God loved you so, and He demonstrated that love so that we might know Him. How do we avoid the traps of false gospels, of false teachers? We must dwell, we must look upon the greatest sign that God has ever given to us. Christ on the cross. You remember, we looked at Exodus 3 and God promised a sign to Moses. God promised Moses that his sign for him would be when the people of Israel, the people of God, were worshiping God on the mountain. The church is the fulfilled promise that God has saved and is saving people from their sins to worship Him in spirit and in truth. When we trace the story of how God is calling a people, rescuing a people to worship Him, we see that story, that promise given to Moses, and we get to see that fulfilled. We should be seeing that fulfilled in this body of people who are gathered here this Sunday morning. Of people who were sinners, who've come together, not because we come on Sunday morning to make ourselves feel better, to come on Sunday morning to just see our friends. We're coming on Sunday morning to be reminded that God saved us, that God loved us, even while we were enemies. And that is what strengthens us Now live in light of the gospel. The mighty sign from God is that He demonstrated grace towards us while we were sinners. What this means, contrary to what many will tell you even in the the groups, the circles of Christianity, this does not mean that God loved you because you were so great, does it? God did not love us because we were so special. God did not love us because we were worthy. God loved us through His Son who died for us so that He might demonstrate His glory and salvation and that proper worship of the God who is worthy would be restored. Just like Israel, we need to know that God keeps his word. That he has kept his word to save, despite the fact that we have rebelled against him again and again. This great, this truth, it's for each and every one of you here if you will believe. There's forgiveness for those who will repent and trust in Christ. You see, we must recognize our sin and turn from it. Turn from it to the one and only Creator God. We should take the warning that comes at the end of this passage. For Pharaoh's heart was still hardened. He was stubborn. He would not listen to them. And he remained condemned. As we think back to the twelfth sign that not only this was a sign to come, if he did not repent, what worse would come, and worse did come for Pharaoh was swallowed up by the Red Sea with his army. We must remember that this grace, the hope of the gospel, is here until that judgment will come and Christ will return to judge. We must recognize our sin. We must turn to Christ. We must be on guard against false teachers and false signs. And here's the thing, God will not withhold his judgment forever. He's given us a sign. The sign is is that we were sinners who deserved condemnation, but He has demonstrated His love and that He has provided a means of salvation. But the only way that we can have that salvation is when we repent, we recognize our sins, and we turn to Him and declare that He alone is God, that salvation is only through Christ. God will not withhold His judgment forever, but will come in judgment against all who have rebelled and all who remain in sin. As we look at this text and we see the warning that God gives Pharaoh through this sign, I hope and pray that none of you would be as Pharaoh is. None of you would sit and see this sign and would remain in rebellion against God, but that we would all turn we would repent, we would turn to Christ, place our hope in Him, repent of our sins, and declare that salvation is through God and God alone. My hope and my prayer is that none of you will find yourself in opposition to God when that time comes. But I can't answer that for you. You must ask yourself, you must come before God and ask, Lord, Have I trusted in you? Lord, make me aware of my sin. Show me the way to life and life abundant. It is through, I can tell you this, through Christ and Christ alone. So my hope and prayer is that no one will leave today without knowing the peace that comes from knowing that God is the creator of all things, that he is in control, that he is trustworthy. My hope and prayer is that all will believe and that we would be his church representing the grace of him that lives through redeemed lives who are living for God's glory and not our own. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is the prayer that we're going to end the sermon on after we sing this last song. prayer that God would be glorified through us as we turn and trust in Him. My hope and prayer is that you would turn and trust in Him this morning. Let's pray.